Welcome to the Kelly Cardenas Podcast, the 98-2, where we have 98% attitude and 2% aptitude. Uh, we're, we're joined by, I think, the, the greatest uh, man to grace the uh, professional beauty industry, one of the best uh, guys in the world, and also, I think, the, uh, one of the greatest minds in business itself. And I'm so excited to have um, Van Council on the podcast. Welcome, Van. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor to be on your podcast. I've always admired and respected you, so I look forward to uh, this next hour. Well, I, I love, I think it's one of the biggest things that I love about you is the humility. I mean, probably my favorite title because there's uh, Van the man, right? So the guy, the human being, there's Van the hairdresser, there's Van the salon owner, there's Van the, the um, uh, entrepreneur. Uh, but my favorite title when I was a kid in Memphis was you said it. I'm not saying, this isn't my words, guys, but this was his words. He said that he was a hillbilly entrepreneur. <laughs> and it was my favorite title that you've ever had. Um, my history... I, I, I'm, in, I'm sitting in North Georgia now, right, right near the river they come delivering. So what can I say? <laughs> well, uh, our history goes back, I mean, in my memory, it goes back further than probably with Vans because I came in contact with his salons. Uh, this was years ago. I lived in Memphis, Tennessee. It was in 1995. And I got training from a guy who's the artistic director for him. His name is Brandon Dara. And I just fell in love with what Van was doing. And he was so far advanced. In 1995, um, he was doing things that some salons aren't even doing now. Uh, so uh, I know your salon started in 1984. Am I correct on this? Yeah, we uh, opened up. I started doing hair in 1976. I, I, was, I worked in two or three salons. And then in 84, I did open up a small salon, seven chairs, about 800 square feet. So, yeah, that's where we started. So when you started off that way, you started off as a hairdresser. I mean, and at that time, in what, what year was it? 1976. 76. In 76, it probably wasn't that popular for a, a, a guy in the South to be a hairdresser. Am I correct? Uh, definitely not. Okay. So you start off, um, you, how long do you work in the salon? And then how long until you become a salon owner? Uh, I started in 76. I opened in 84. So what's that like? You know, eight years. I was a hairdresser before I opened up a salon. Why did you? Why did you do it? I never really had the desire to have my own salon. You know, I was perfectly happy working with other people. I just being in Atlanta in the late seventies. The reason I moved around two or three times. I always moved around if I thought there was a salon that I could learn more. At, you know, to become a better hairdresser. I never dislike the owner or dislike people I work with, but if somebody opened up a shop and I felt like there was an opportunity to learn, learn more, then I would move there. And the more I realized from going to London at Sassoon's and traveling around the country and studying other hairdressers, there wasn't a salon in Atlanta at that time that I felt like gave me everything that I wanted to have, you know, working in salons. So that's really when I decided to do my own salon to create environment that I wish I could be in. So when you, uh, like, where did this desire come from? Uh, you know, we, we talk about it on the podcast a ton, which is the, we call it the 98-2 rule, 98% attitude and 2% aptitude. Uh, my dad said that I was the example of that, and I wasn't very happy when I heard it the first time because I was like, Dad, you're not telling me that I'm super smart. He said, well, son, 98% of your, your success in life is going to have to deal with your attitude. Where did that attitude come from? At, you know, because we're, you're in Atlanta or you're in Georgia at that time, right? So you're in Georgia. Um, and 
there's not, it's not popular for a guy to be a hairdresser. Um, where do you get the thought process of going to Sassoon, going and uh, educating yourself? Where did that come from? Like, you know, cause most people don't live that, that way right now. Well, I, um, you know, first I was inspired from the movie shampoo in 1975 to, to be a hairdresser, you know, so that I was a junior in high school when the movie came out and I saw it and, I always played a lot of sports, football, basketball, baseball, box, and I wasn't really good at hitting the book. So once I saw this movie, I'm like, okay, I would like to do that, ride a Harley and uh, have nice girlfriends and cut beautiful people's hair. So I got into it, not knowing a hairdresser, not knowing anything. And just after a year or two, just meeting different people, I realized the potential in the business I really going, I went to Sassoon's where I got out of beauty school for six weeks in London and I met hairdressers from all over the world. I mean, there was guys from there from New York that had three, four salons. And that's when I really started seeing the potential of how much money could be made. And then I just started paying attention. So by time it come to the point that I opened up my own salon, I realized that salons most of them didn't have a true education program like a Bedell Sassoon had. And I also realized that nobody had benefits. So when we opened up our salon from the get-go, we were paying for people's insurance, their 401k, paid vacations. So, you know, I wanted to create a company that people could have a retirement, you know, that if they work there for 20, 30 years, they don't work their way to poverty, that when they're quit, they're just broke, you know, so... We've been open now for 36 years. We have one employee who's been there for 30 years, and he has over a million dollars in his 401k. You know, and we have a lot of people at over half a million. We we have six employees that's been with us for 30 years. We have 25 or 20 years, and then we've got over 100 people with over 10 years. So I think the benefits of 401k, the things that we saw in the beginning that hairdressers needed in this industry was what attracted people and what's been able to keep us long-term and just my competitive nature. Like I've, you know, I've raced mountain bikes and and I always want to win. So even as we took off and we started growing, like my goal is never to take, to take it for granted and never be complacent. So, you know, for 35 years, I've kept my foot on the gas, you know, doing photo shoots, doing videos, trying to, the creative side of hairdressers on top of, you know, knowing it's a business. We got to have, you know, a certain amount of retail sales, you know, we got to educate our clients, our staff, and, you know, it's been full on, but, you know, if you want to win, you got to train, you got to practice, you got to keep pushing. You can't ever assume, you know, that just because you won the championship this year, you're going to win next year. So, you know, I'm just always trying to improve Every system that we have, way we answer the phone, way we greet people, how we greet them the first five minutes, how we say goodbye to them in the last five minutes, how we do our consultation. So we, we never have things like this is the way we do it and this is the way we do it forever. It's like this is the way we do it for now and we're looking for a better way to do it has always kind of been my attitude. So when you said you got out of beauty school, right? So you go to beauty school in Georgia, right? Yeah. So you go to beauty school in Georgia. Six weeks after, you fly to London. Like, well, that was about a year later. A year later. I think that's what I should do. I got out of 
used to I went for I went to work for a salon that was charging three dollars a haircut. <laughs> you know, so I was charging three dollars a haircut. But just starting to get my hair magazines, you know, Modern Salon, American, I started realizing there and I'm one thing I was lucky enough to know is that I didn't have a freaking clue what I was doing cutting hair. Cause she never had to know much at three dollar haircuts, but uh Anyhow, I knew that I had no training from beauty school. That I did know. And there was nowhere at that time to go be an assistant for the training program in Atlanta. It did not exist. You know, people would let you stand behind the chair and sweep the floor for a year, but there wasn't really any structured training. So I realized I had to go out and get my own training. So a year later, I did um, get my parents' help fund me, my grandparents, a, a trip to London for six weeks. It's funny, sometimes people say, where'd you grow up at? And I want to say London, even though I was only there six weeks, I did a lot of growing up. <laughs> a lot of good ways, a lot of bad ways. But that's when I learned that the industry, the influence, you know, and, and the potential that was in this industry, because it was a group of people that I met there that six weeks, you know, and, um, and just to watch how amazing the training was and how great the hair cutters was. It was so inspiring. And luckily, I was only 20 years old. So it put me on the right path. Now, I'm not Sassoon trained because I believe you have to work for Sassoon to have that title. I believe a few classes here and there will make you better, but you're still not Sassoon trained. Only people who work for Sassoon for five or ten years has that right to say that. So, But I've always looked up that organization and I followed our cutting methods and you know, off of Sassoon training and our our training program is copied off of 80% of what they do. So how much do you think that, uh, you know, you say you're playing sports, you, you had that competitive nature. Um, I think a lot of times when people are interviewing, like this is a thing that we do within our company as we ask, I always ask is, you know, did you play sports? And when they say, yes, I say, did you win? And they, uh, some kids are like, well, you know, I just like to play. And I say, did you, did you get mad when you lost? And it tells a lot about someone. How much do you think your, your sports uh, background helped you in business as you move forward? Well, I think it's huge. I think it's who you are. You know, like no matter what sport I was playing, I did want to win. I mean, I'm a good sport about losing. I mean, I can take losing as long as I know that I gave it my best shot, you know, uh, like I said, I've, I've been racing mountain bikes the last 15 years, and I've won many, many races in my age group. But it's it's the same as owning the salon. It's a lot of training, you know, like and, – and we're owning a business is all about endurance, honestly. I used to do 25 to 30 haircuts a day. I'd have a breakfast meeting. I'd have a dinner meeting with staff. I managed them. I was working for Aveda. I was on the road 20 to 25 weekends a year. I mean, I literally would go 10 weeks in a row without having a day off, like not one day between shows on the weekends and doing my clients. Like I'd leave on Saturday after my clients flying somewhere, do a model call, prep early Sunday morning, do a show Sunday afternoon, be there on Monday, do a hands-on workshop, fly back Monday night, back in the salon Tuesday. I would row with that a lot of times 10 weeks straight without a day off. So it's the same as doing a hundred mile mountain bike race. It's long, it's hard, it's, but you put your head down and you keep going, you know, and uh, you just, you got to have that tenacity and that determination and that stick to it. And I'm not going to quit, you know, like uh, just keep pushing through it. So I think it's very related to who you are that you have that 
ability to push through the pain and that you actually enjoy the pain. Like I never during that time cried about how much I was working because I, I love to work. I, I love to see people grow in my company and, you know, I mean, I used to have a theory if I wasn't working or working out or learning something, I was wasting time, you know? So I still have that little bit left in me. I've chilled a little bit at age 62, but I still don't want to binge watch watching TV or I'm always reading a book. I still try to read a book a week. Uh, you know, some kind of positive thinking or some business books. I'm always reading. I'm still always learning. I'm still going to hair shows and I'm a member of Intercofure and PBA and all these organizations. And, you know, um, and I even look outside of the industry, you know, I watch, you know, what companies do like Starbucks and Disney on, you know, how can I always improve uh, the customer's experience? So I'm, I'm constantly learning and, and grinding and, you know, I, I don't want to be retired and, you know, people say, what's your exit strategy? And I always say death, you know, I've, I've plan on working to the end because I love it. <laughs> so when, when, uh, when people ask this, I just got asked the other day is, you know, how do you self-motivate and how do you, you know, how do you stay up? How do you stop burnout and things like that? What, it, what, what I hear in you is that you love what you do. You're connected with it. And it's not like, it's not like you're having to go to the well to go get motivation. Right. And I think that so many people are looking for motivation. What is that like for you um, when you hear that, like a person says, hey, you know what, Van, what five steps that I can do to stay motivated? When people ask me that, um, I honestly, I just tell them that they, they're not doing what they love. What is your answer to that part of it? Well, people say, how do you stay motivated? Sometimes I want to say, how do you, how do you not stay motivated? Because, I mean, motivation is all around you. You know, like it's all around you. There's people doing more than you do all the time. You know, there's people getting up in the morning. Like I love, you know who David Goggins is, right? Do you know him? I mean, I love following David Goggins. The guy by 8 o'clock in the morning before he goes to work has already run 20 miles and rode a bicycle 50 miles and he does a 1,000 push-ups a day. So I just open my eyes and find motivation everywhere. You know, I find motivation through artists, you know, all these great hairdressers on Instagram and what they're doing. And, you know, like it's just everywhere, you know, motivation is everywhere. If you want it, it's just a choice. You know, do you want to be motivated or not? You know, cause it's out there and it's everywhere. There's in books, it's on TV, it's on movies, it's in businesses, you know, watch what people are doing. Uh, so I'm just motivated by just so many people around me and what they're doing. And I'm motivated a lot by my staff. And I guess at the end of the day, I'm, I'm motivated mostly because I'm in the role. I have two kids and I have 400 employees here and 600 in Japan. And I'm motivated to be their leader and, and make sure that I'm making the right decisions and that I can help them all have a better life and make a better living. So that's a lot of motivation there that I don't let people down that's in my circle. Wow. So when we're, when you're looking at it too, when you're, uh, you know, um, as you're growing up, you, you, uh, you know, a couple years out of school or eight years out of school, then you're saying, or, you know, you're saying, Hey, I want to open my own salon. What was the expectation as opposed to reality? Because there's so many kids out there um, that I'll talk to young, uh, you know, I'll go and talk to schools and they'll say my, my dream, I'm just going to open up my salon. I want to open up my salon right when I get done with school. Uh, what was your the expectation of your owning a salon and then the reality 
of owning a salon because it's complete. I, I, I don't know. I, I found that it's quite different. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't grow up in a, a family of entrepreneurs, so I never dreamed about owning my own business. Not, not one time, really. It kind of hit me about a year before I did that maybe I should have my own shop because I was working somewhere with a hairdresser. It was amazing, but it was so unorganized and so many things wrong. And then I, I was going to leave to try to find a better place to work. And as I interviewed around town, I realized every, every place is the same. So my motivation was to create, you know, something that wasn't like everywhere else. And then I was actually having breakfast one morning in a, in a little restaurant near where my, my salon was being built out. And I ran into a, uh, a girl that I went to beauty school with and I told her I was opening up mom's salon and her answer was great. It's all a line of needs is another hair salon. Cause it was so many of them. And my answer to her, well, it's not going to be just another salon. And I, I was on the mission to make sure that I had the best education. Like if people worked for me for three, four years and left that they, that I gave them something that I could never take back, you know, that they would have an education that would help them be better in their career and their life. Uh, so I wanted to have the best education program I could. And, you know, I'd been at that point, I had kind of figured out what that looked like. I wanted to have benefits. I wanted to have customer service, you know, as good as any business, you know, that served any customers on any level. So I knew it was a combination of things that I had to make happen, uh, you know, to, to have the salon that I wanted to have. So, you know, I opened up at 25 years old and I just started doing you know, we started training the very first assistant that we trained. We've trained all of our people that they still go through a two year training program out of school and it's six days of the week. I've never have bent for my standards. You know, like I tell people we're going to be the Navy SEALs or, or uh, you know, the Navy SEALs are hairdressing. Everybody's going to pay their dues and they're going to work hard. And if you don't make it, you don't. But by doing that, it creates a very quality staff and it gives you a lot of loyalty. So I just knew it had to be something different. You know, it can't be like everybody, every other place because you don't make it. I mean, you ever, you ever went into a restaurant and it was just okay. It was average. You go back and tell all your friends, Hey, I went to this restaurant. It was, it was just okay. You should try it. So I always knew that I wanted to wow customers and that I had to stand out for the customers. And I also had to always ask myself, would I work for me? I mean, if I was a hairdresser in this day and time, would I work here? Is this the best place in town to work? If not, I got to figure out what makes it the best place in town. You know, or, or if I, and so I would look at the competition. I mean, I'm friendly with everybody, but what benefits are they offering? What education, what earning powers? Like we want to charge the most amount of money in town, you know? So I want to be the place, you know, that people want to work. And even last year, I mean, for all the coronavirus, I mean, we're on a whole different path suddenly overnight, but, Last year, we still averaged 500 applications a year, and we're hiring 35 people. You know, so we have eight salons and 400 employees, and, you know, we can truly say, and we shut down two weeks ago, we had a hairdresser for every single chair and 80 people in training, you know, so we always kept our training program strong. People would come, the reason we got so many applications because it's such a good training program. You know, people, a lot of kids know getting out of school, there are a big percentage of them that think they're ready for a floor, but there's still quite a few of them that was just like I was realizing like, I'm not ready and I need to be trained, you know, and that's why people were seeking us out because they wanted to get that training program. So right now, Van, you got, we have, you have 12 in Atlanta, am I correct? Eight in Atlanta, 42 in Japan. 
Okay. Yeah. So when you, when you start out in 1984, right. And you're, you know, you, you open the first shop, you got seven chairs, you got 800 square foot. Does Van see the, the empire, um, eight salons, you have 400, 400. Let me, I'm going to say that into the mic again, 400 in the Buckhead salon, you have uh, 97 or almost a hundred employees in one location. Am I correct? Yeah. Buckhead, we have about 110 people in that one location. Did you see that when you opened the 800 square foot? I did it. I did it. You know, I never had a desire to have more than one salon. I started off with the one. It was 800 square feet. And and I kept getting lucky. Places next door would go out of business and I would take it and I would take it. So that location is now 9,000 square feet. It's the same location that we opened in, but we've expanded it. And then for 10 years, I didn't do a second salon because I was still doing hair. I wanted to be in control. I wanted to make sure I could see what was going on. I was the first one in, the last one to leave. But as we hired people, we put them through training. I just didn't have a chair, nowhere to put them because people weren't leaving. So I finally, I kept expanding just to help give people places to work. So finally, I I couldn't grow anymore in that location. So I finally went out and did the second one. And same thing happened there. It filled up. Chairs were full. People were training. It was like a snowball effect. I never went out and opened up a location, then had to go run an ad for hairdressers. I always had people that was been in the company two to three years in training, and I needed a place for them to work. So I've always opened up to create jobs. So I never really cared if I had one salon or ten. I never had a goal. Like I, I just wanted to keep quality high. I didn't want to get to the point that I expanded and I had to hire just any person from anywhere because I needed a, a body behind the chair. I never wanted to be in that position and, and I have, I've never have been yet. So, you know, but yeah, I didn't, I didn't see it where, where it ended up at, but I, I saw trying to be the best I could be no matter what size I was. Well, when I started this off, I said that you're the top in the professional beauty industry and you guys are starting to understand why I'm saying that. Um, as we, as we're looking at it too, um, you told me, I, I'm very fortunate because uh, you've been very gracious to me. I stalked you a couple of times and told you that I was going to force you to be my friend for the rest of your life. Um, and I got, a chance, I got a chance to be on the uh, call with you. You took probably 45 minutes with me. And it wasn't like you cut off with me either. You were like, do you have everything you need? And you, you were open book. You had a formula which blew me away. Um, for your business on how you open it up, even down to the radius. Can you share, can you share a little bit of that? Uh, is that, is that okay? Um, can you share a little bit of that? Because this was mind blowing because you just, you said at the beginning, you weren't, um, so excited about hitting the books, but Van, you are one of the most genius businessmen, not salon owners, one of the most biz- uh, uh, genius businessmen in this country. And I think if more people thought like you, we could, we could move forward. So help them out with this kind of equation. Well, the beginning, um, and you may want to ask me some questions, make sure I cover everything. But like beginning, I realized how much I had to produce per square foot to be profitable. And I never wanted a second salon until the, every, the salon, the first one had to be averaging $1,000 a square foot. And to do that, I had to have a hairdresser about every five feet apart, about one hairdresser for every 150 square feet in the salon. You know, so, so every chair had to be at 80% uh, 
uh, you know, max books to hit those numbers. So every location does a thousand dollars more square feet. Like Buckhead last year, we did 9.6 million and 9,000 square feet. So we try to operate on those kind of numbers. If you got 3,000 square feet, you want to be doing over 3 million a year before you would do another location. But once you hit a thousand dollars a square foot, that's about as busy as it's going to get a thousand to 1200. Once I decided to start doing other locations, I never went more than five miles away from my uh, from the one that the last one that I opened. And the reason I did that because I wanted to keep brand awareness. I didn't want to go 50 miles away or a hundred miles away and, you know, or to another city to Birmingham or, or Knoxville or somewhere because you're starting completely over no brand. So five miles away, I still have my brand awareness. I could transfer hairdressers from one location to the other. They would still keep their clientele and that would create the energy because that's what salons are really all about. Well, it was up till now it's coronavirus. I don't know, but it was, it was all about the energy. You know, people wanted to come in and feel that energy and that vibe. And so by moving people from one location to the other, it would, you know, get, uh, the energy going, it would keep my culture in play. So right now in Atlanta and in, in the eight salons we have, they are all in a 10 mile radius of the, of the flagship location. You know, so we, we did 29 million last year in a 10 mile radius in Atlanta, you know, but our brand awareness is so strong. Like we feel like we own that market, you know, so that's been kind of my strategy for growing is, you know, to keep them close together and to keep my culture and also you know I look and each time I go into a salon I don't have the numbers in front of me now but you know I have a number how many people I want to live in a one mile radius I think it's something like 20,000 and a three mile radius like a I can't remember these numbers off of him but I know in a five mile radius we want to at least have 180,000 people living in a five mile radius and they're averaging over 100,000 a year income you know, so as we get ready to move to a new location, we really look at the demographics and make sure there's enough of people that want a high-end haircut and want high-end service, you know, because if you want to charge $100 a haircut, you've got to be in that kind of environment, you know. So those are the kind of little things we've looked at when we expand it and grow. Dan, where were you when I started my company? Because when, when you and I talked, you, you asked me, first of all, like, okay, so you, what do you have? And I said, well, we've got one in Chicago. We've got one in Las Vegas. We've got one in Carlsbad. And there was a bit of a silence. And I wish I would have talked to you early on because I didn't do the 10-mile radius. I didn't do the 5-mile radius. I did all over the country, and I, I experienced exactly those pain points where we didn't have brand awareness, where we had to create a new brand every single time. Um, so... Help us to yeah. – oh, go ahead. I'll say, yeah, I mean, you know, you can go out of state. Absolutely. There's people do it. I mean, you know, but it's just so much harder when you have – see, I looked at guys like Gene Juarez doing $70 million in Seattle, a town smaller than Atlanta, or, or Trocosi doing $70 million in Ch Chicago, or uh, Visible Changes in Houston, you know, and I kind of looked at that. And I've stepped out, and I did Miami, and I'm, I had a salon in Miami for 15 years, and we – we made it, but it took seven years to, to make a profit, you know, because we started absolutely from scratch. Did two clients the first day, two the next. The whole first week we did two. Next week we did four. Next week we did eight. So we're in Atlanta. We opened up a new location. We might do two million the first year because we have that brand. But 
I just kind of, after I did Miami and I realized how hard it was and I got looking at all these big players who just stayed in their marketplace. So like I said, success leaves clues. You know, you can look around and see what successful people are doing and you can, you know, just copy that. And that's kind of what I've done. But I looked at, after I did Miami, like, okay, I'm done with going out of town. I'm going to just build my market bigger. You know, and then I didn't have that infrastructure in Miami. I was flying educators down there every other week. If I, in Atlanta, when we hire somebody to work on the phones or in the call center, I have a program. They go through a two-week training before they even get to touch a phone. And then they got somebody standing over them. In Miami, I was just like a small little typical salon. We trained them right there behind the desk. And, you know, it's just, you just lose so much infrastructure when you go out of town in our business. It's very hard. If you look at, Vidal Sassoon and Tony and Guy, you know, they they were as good as you could get at their, what they did. But when they expanded, they all ended up in malls and they ended up more like mall salons. You know, it's just hard to transfer that culture that you have in your home market to, to, to a different city. So where did the, the business acumen blows my mind? Because you're, I mean, you just passed over. You're like, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, last year we did 29 million. Uh, Gene Juarez, 70 million. Um, you know, you're throwing out these things. You're so comfortable with it, which is amazing. Where did the business acumen come from? Because a lot of times hairdressers struggle with both sides. You hear this all the time with, with salon owners. And you hear this all the time with just artists in general who are passionate about what they do. I love what I do. Um, or I'm an artist. I'm not really a business person. I do it because I have to, but you seem to have dived like you are creative in the business space. Where did that part come from? Well, I think from the school of hard knocks, you know, I opened up my salon and, uh, we took off pretty quick as me and my, my brothers, my partner, and we, we had clientele going in and I mean, we just had a great location. We started training people and they were getting busy. So, you know, after, owning the business for two years, you know, I'm like looking at end of day and shit, I'm, I'm making less than some of the hairdressers, you know? And I realized like, uh, maybe I need to learn about cash flow and P and L's cause I didn't have a clue about any of that the first two years. So, you know, once I hired an accountant and started working with him, I started realizing, okay, this is a business, you know? And I read, I started reading books like the E-Myth, you know, it was like, and uh, it's been so long since I read the book. Have you ever read the E-Myth? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it was talking about, do you want to own a job or do you want to own a business? And so just from reading books and realizing that I could have the busiest salon in the world and be non-profitable, that I could be literally be busy and lose money or go out of business or just be working for my staff only. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I can't, you know, I just had to realize there was three identities. There's, the, there's the owner and he's got to make money and there's the hairdresser, the employee, and they've got to make good money. But then there's the mother, which is the company. And the mother is the most important. They've got to make money because they got to keep investing money back in the company. Like I can't rape the company. I can't pull all the money out. You know, I've always just had a set salary. And then at the end of the year, if I had some money left over, I could pull. I did, but that was after I did marketing and promotion and training and renovation. So I just learned in the beginning that this is a business and I've got to run it like a business, you know, and I got to make all my decisions, not based on emotional things, but on the numbers, you know, but it took me a couple, three years before that light came on. You know what I mean? I was just trying to just think, Oh, if I could ever keep what I brought in, I'd be happy. You know, I had that mentality, but 
I realized like it was more to it. And then I got, you know, joining Intercofure, becoming a member of Aveda was huge. I started meeting people like successful people like Horst, you know, David Wagner, Ray Chavello, you know, many, many others I could go on. And, you know, these guys had real businesses running. So, you know, they became my mentors and that's why I'm always willing to share with anybody like yourself. Cause I had people sit down with me and go, look, man, this is what you got to do. This is how it works. And I, you know, I, I probably, I mean, I have a lot of fault, uh, faults and, you know, I'm not perfect, but probably one thing I've always been really good at, I will say I'm a good listener, you know, so I've always tried to listen to people and people give you good advice and bad and you got to figure which one it is. I don't debate what people tell me. If I disagree, I just say thank you. do it, but a lot of people give me a lot of good advice as I can. Try you know, to copy it as close as I can. You know, I've just been kind of lucky that I've just been a student of learning. You know, student of learning. You know. Yeah, that's, it's incredible because that's that's an art that I mean, most of the time people want to be out front. And what I've noticed about you, I mean, and again, my whole my whole entire career has been. Yeah, something. Shut up. <laughs> Well, Van, my whole career has been literally has been wrapped around, uh, you know, and, and in connection with you all the way through, whether you knew it or not. Um, you know, in 19, it was 1994 um, is when I first came in touch with your with your brand and to be able to see it. And it was the pinnacle. And then uh, I was saying earlier that in 1995, you were doing things that people aren't doing now. I mean, you have a call center where the you know, where uh, the the front desk is not having to answer the phone and make uh, appointments. Where did, the, where did that thought, I mean, you were doing that so early on. You had touchscreen computers in 1995 to check people in. Um, you had a training program uh, new, called New Talent uh, that was, you know, that you were doing. Uh, where did they, was that, was that, uh, you know, studying other people? Was that uh, looking at it or was that just adapting to what you needed at the time? It's a little combination of each. Like I would be standing behind the chair doing clients and, you know, we had one big ch desk in the middle where people checked in and also where they paid to leave. And I would see this bottleneck full of people, you know, like waiting to pay. And of course I'm cutting hair and I know this is bad service. So it just come to me to separate it. You know, let's have the phone people booking somewhere. Let's have a desk that people just check in and people just checked out. And that was back in late eighties, you know, when we did that. Actually, new talent, I was thinking about, you know, no matter how well I train people, when I put them on the floor, they had really poor client retention. So I'm thinking, you know, they come out of beauty school and they're doing five, six clients a day. Now they're in our assistant program. They do one model on Monday. Then the next five days are blow drying behind me or shampooing. And so they're doing one haircut a week no matter what we were doing on Mondays at the end of the year, I found that they had less confidence, you know, like they've only done 40 haircuts or 50 haircuts in a whole year. And now I'm putting them on the floor and they're insecure and they don't have confidence. And so I was like, what can I do to get them more experience? So I came up with like, maybe if I'd put them on the floor at half price, the expectations would be less and they would be automatically booked, which is what happened. Now horse, he actually had a salon called new talent. And it was a training salon, but for some reason it didn't make it and he closed it. So I went to him and asked him if I could have the name and trademark it. And he said, yes, because I thought about, what well, am I going to call this bunch of people that are cutting hair after training, 
you know, that's doing half price and new talent seemed to be the name to fit. So it's this combination like watching the bottleneck, watching how I can, I can improve service, but also, you know, having people like Horace already had figured out people need more experience. I mean, because, you know, what salons do, clients call in, they've never been to Van Michael, and they call up, they want this great expectations. They come in, they're getting the guy that's only been out of beauty school for a year. Well, that's not the same experience as a person that's been there five or 10 years. So now, you know, they're, they're in new talent for, you know, they, they go through a year of training with a mentor, then they're in new talent for a year, year and a half. So time really, they go on the Van Michael floor. They're, they're two to three years in our company to understand our culture and understand what level of customer service we want. So I feel like no one's getting a brand new person when they ask for Van Michael. And the other reason I wanted a name for that, if they, if they did come in and get a bad haircut with somebody who just went on the floor, they can't really say they got it done at Van Michael. They got it done at New Talent. So I was trying to protect my brand also from the newbies of the damage that they can do, you know, because I really do think, I mean, you can turn out a pretty decent hairdresser in a couple of years, but I think it takes five years for people to really master this profession between, I mean, you got blow drying and updos and cutting and straighteners and relaxers and perms and salon etiquette and manners and consultations and blow dry lessons. I mean, there's a lot of things to learn before you can be a top stylist in this business. You know, people get a big ego because we're busy at $60, but yeah, are you good enough to be busy at $160? You know, that's what I'm telling them. Like, yeah, you might be busy at 60, but is your game good enough to keep going up $10 every year? You know, and that's why you got to work on your performance every day, every year. You got to get better at performing behind the chair because at a certain point, you will know how to cut a perfect bob probably, you know, but what, what are you going to do to get a customer to pay you $200 for that bob instead of $100 for that bob, you know? So that's kind of the way we work with our staff is that, yeah, you're busy now, but you're going to be busy five years from now at twice the price. What are you going to do to get better? So that's kind of where our kind of the heart and soul of our training is from, you know, like the sky's the limit if you keep getting better. Wow. So you said uh, earlier that you study companies like Disney and like Starbucks. Um, you know, being in the professional beauty industry, most of the time people are just studying salons. But you said that you're studying salons and you're studying like a, a Disney and a Starbucks. Tell us some of the inspiration that you've got from a Disney or from a Starbucks that you've been able to incorporate, um, because I believe that principles are principles in business. And that's what you are showing on a high level. So help us with that. Well, you know, it's just like this customer service ideas, VIP programs, you know, stuff like that. Like, you know, you go into Disney, if you're, you know, you can buy a fast track, you know, and skip the crowds, you know, just little things. What can we do for our top clients? You know, uh, what can we do to separate? Like, what does Starbucks do to separate itself from all the other coffee shops? You know, the atmosphere that it built, you know, the, the friendliness, you know, just little things like that. And, you know, Disney, the excitement, the fun, the energy, you know, so I'm just study those companies because really the truth is our competition is anybody who's after the customer's discretionary income. I mean, you got an extra $500 this month. Where do you spend it? In the hair salon or a pair of shoes or a movie or a dinner? You know, it's not like which salon I'm going to. Where do I take my money 
and, and spend it. So what kind of experience am I giving them, you know, that stands out? So that's what I'm looking for. You know, I mean, that's why I, I, I mean, like when people come in to Buckhead Salon, I mean, it's like coming into a nightclub. It's like coming into a fashion show backstage. Everybody is dressed to the hilt because most people have very boring lives. You know, they're bored at home. They work in an office like this is every six weeks. This is their one hour of excitement. You know, this is their one hour of being cool and fitting in. So we got to be that place that they come to that makes them feel like they're cool. They're in the cool place. They're fitting in. We're cool people. We look good. We're fashionable. So it's all those things like, yeah, have a dress code. Look good. Look like I tell myself, dress every day as if you're going to be on the news, if you're going to be in the paper. You know, I see hairdressers come to work looking like shit, and then they finish their last client. They get all, they do their makeup and the hair to go out. You know, <laughs> like, like tr fall in love with your clients. Like when your clients come in, realize you're starting a brand new relationship. I mean, treat it like you're dating. Like you want to form a long-term relationship with every single client. What you look like and what you say and what you smell like is a lasting impression for their whole life, you know? So you only get one shot to make that impression. So we really put a lot of emphasis on, you know, be on your game, you book a haircut for 45 minutes, clean your station up, straighten up, reprogram yourself that here's this client since their first time in and you got to be on your game over and over, over. It takes razor sharp focus. You know, that's what separates a LeBron James and a Michael uh, Jordan, these people's level of to be able to focus you know, over and over and over and over and keep practices and keep getting better. And it's really the same in our industry. It's easy to get complacent and just take it for granted. Here's another client. Here's another haircut. But if you can stay out of that mindset, you'll raise it to the top. Like our top producer, you know, for cutting is Brandon. He came into New Talents, the first New Talents. You talked about Brandon. He was charging $12 a haircut in New Talents at the time. And now he's uh, $160 a haircut, still booked out for two months. He brought in, you know, working four days a week last year, he brought into the company 300000 in cutting. And, you know, his goal is to be a $200 haircutter. So, you know, he's got to be better in a couple, three years than he is now, you know. But he's got clients who have stayed with him since $12, you know, so – that's to me the most amazing part about what we're doing and what we're capable of doing and the amount of dedication and focus it takes to keep growing, you know, and to keep, keep getting better. Well, with Brandon, I remember, uh, as a kid, uh, he did a haircutting class and I, I came to him and I said, um, now I know where it comes from, but I asked him, I said, you know, I'm having a challenge. He said, what's the challenge? I said, well, I'm, I'm fully booked for six weeks solid. And, um, what do I do? And I thought he was going to tell me, stop taking new guests. And he looked at me and he simply said, make your haircuts last longer, um, do a better job. And it really changed kind of my thought process because, and now listening to you and being able to spend some time with you, I mean, that relentless spirit, like I tell you, Van, honest to God, like I haven't, and it's so refreshing. I haven't seen that in our industry. I haven't seen, like, you're, 
you're almost coming through the screen. Like I can feel your energy coming through the screen saying, I'm not going to ease up. Uh, you know, you said earlier that, uh, you know, if you want to win, you have to push and you have to push through pain and you'll have to love, oh, you want to love to see people grow and you gotta, you gotta love the work part of it. So we start off with, you know, Van that uh, doesn't do that well in school, goes to beauty school, uh, is out of beauty school for, you know, a year, goes to London, um, claims that he grew up in London, and, <laughs> and then opens his salon, uh, starts to just focus on quality, not having some big goal of going crazy, like, you know, I want to have a million salons, and, uh, you know, you just want to have quality. Bring in Japan, because Japan is, a, I mean, you have 42 salons in Japan. You have more salons in Japan. You have five times more salons in Japan than you do in Atlanta. So how did that happen? And take us through that. Well, the, the salons in Japan are actually called band councils. So they're not band models. And they're doing very well. And the quality is very good. It's not exactly the, on, on the exact same level as Van Michael. And uh, I have partners there. So the way it came about, I was the artistic director for Joyco back in 86, 87, well, 87, 88, and 89. I was the artistic director for Joyco. And they had a big distribution in Japan. So my first trip to Japan was for six weeks, but I'd only been had my own salon open for four weeks. I mean, I'm sorry, for four years. And I went away for six weeks, so... But I constantly, they kept sending me to Japan to do shows and training. I was going a couple times a year from two weeks to six weeks. And um, I met a group of Japanese guys there. And they approached me you know, after two or three years of going over there about partnering with them and doing a salon. I was a little hesitant. So that's why I didn't want to put my Van Michael name on it. I knew I was going to never have band council salons in Atlanta. So I did jump into this partnership. We just, I just was there eight weeks ago. We celebrated our 20 year anniversary. It's an amazing group of guys. Uh, they try to duplicate as close as they can to Van Michael. They're getting there, but they don't do everything hundred percent exactly the way we do, but they're thriving to be on that level. Their culture's different in a lot of many ways, but that's really how that came about, you know, is, um, is I was just going there for Joyco. I, I, I resigned from Joyco after three years only because I did have a relationship with Horse and Aveda before I went to Joyco, but I wanted to go back to Aveda, but also Joyco had me gone so much. I was afraid of being out of my own business so much, you know, so I, I wanted to be in my house and put more energy into my company than someone else. You know, where Aveda it was just weekends. I could leave on Saturday and be back Monday night, but with Joyco, they were sending me to, Korea and Taiwan and Taipei and China and just I was gone out of the country in Canada all the time so I just felt like I was gone too much you know I didn't want to be gone a month at a time I had my own clients I wanted to take care of and you know at that point the company was too young for the leader of the company to be gone so much so that's why I pulled back from that but it did set me up for a long-term relationship in Japan so it was a great relationship with Joyco. I'm glad I did it. I, I'm reaping many rewards 20 years later. So uh, I, just, I love the Japanese people. I love the Japanese culture. So it's been fun, you know, but they, they actually have a partnership and they're day-to-day -day running it. We have a, about a hundred of them come twice a year to Atlanta. It's really fun. So we rent a big bus. We visit all eight locations. So 
we're walking around with a hundred people with cameras taking pictures of the hairdressers and the clients. So it's a pretty cool experience, you know, it's just, it's great to just be able, and they're great hairdressers. I learn stuff from them too. I mean, I've taken things from them that I use in my salon. So it's been a win-win relationship. Well, you and and hearing your mind like your mind is so focused like it's incredible but i love the fact of that there's still van the man like there's still van the, the guy who mountain bikes are you what other sports are you playing what other things that you're doing outside because you do those things as almost as as focused as the other part because i'll see you you know see you through social media or when we talk um you're telling me about you know your 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 things that you're really passionate about um, what are those things? What are the things when you're off and uh, maybe you're not, you know, working, um, you know, what are those things yeah. that you're doing? I have, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm, I'm definitely a person that doesn't get bored. You know, people say you would be bored, not working. I don't even know if that's true as much as I love working. Cause I do not sit around, but yeah, I'm an avid cyclist. You know, I try to get, you know, a couple, three hours in a day. I whitewater kayak, so, you know, there's rivers all up in North Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina. I've been to Ecuador this year already paddling, so, you know, I don't mind hunking off maybe. A, I think my highest waterfall is about 50 feet, but that's about my limit now. But uh, I run waterfalls. I, I like to paddle class five. But, you know, at the end of the day, one thing I haven't talked about, you know, I grew up what I would call at the time very poor you know, cause we didn't have any money, but we didn't even know we didn't have money cause nobody around us have any money in North Georgia. But after I got opened my own business and, you know, looking back on life, I really grew up rich because I had great family. I had a great mom and dad, my mom and dad, unfortunately they're still alive. Uh, they're 85 years old, but my mom's the most nurturing person I've ever met in my life. She puts everybody in front of her, everybody. Like she cooks the dinner, she cleans it up. She won't, She's, everybody's done eating before she'll take a bite. You know, it's just all about waiting on other people. So I felt like I, I got this nurturing in from my mom and my mom worked full time too. So I'm not saying she's not a hard worker, but my dad literally was a, a you know, an army. I mean, a, yeah, he was in the army, a Marine. And uh, so, man, I worked, I worked ethics growing up. I mean, with three boys, we did the dishes, the laundry, the floors, the yard. We used to have to wash the roof of the house. So our chore list on Saturdays when everybody was out playing, we were we were working chores, you know. And then if you wanted twenty dollars, you had to get a job. I was mowing yards at twelve years old, you know. I already had my first full time job when I was fifteen, you know, at a janitor at the city hall after school. So. You know, I played sports, and after sports, I went I went to work, you know, in furniture stores and grocery stores at night. So my parents, I have to give my parents a lot of credit. You know, they, they taught us how to say yes, ma'am, no, sir, respect people, and, and taught us that the world didn't know us anything but an opportunity. So a lot, a lot of where I'm at today, really, I got to credit my mom and dad, you know, that they, they raised us right. They didn't give a shit. You know, uh, but they gave us love and they showed us how to work, but they didn't show us the easy route, you know, and um, and, that uh, you know, no matter who you are and how successful you are, you're going to have hard times. You know, I mean, I've been through a lot of personal hard times, but, you know, I just learned how to push through and not right now. The whole country is going through a hard time. And I think the strong, resilient people, they're all going to come through it. You know, like somebody asked me yesterday, seriously, I was on the phone for eight hours yesterday with lawyers and bankers and salon owners asking me, 
what to do, what to do, what to do. But one person said, do you think you'll get through it? I'm like, yeah, I'll get through it because I don't have a choice. <laughs> I'm not going to give up. You know, if I go down, I will go down fighting tooth and nail. And for my staff, you know, I'm going to stand up and make sure that I take care of them because they're what's important in this. But I just think you just got to have the mentality that quitting is not on the list and giving up is not on the list, you know, and, and, and you always got to be better. Just end the story, be better and be kind. That's kind of my philosophy. Well, Van, I don't think it could be said any better than that. I want to, I want to thank you and uh, being able to spend time here on the podcast and just to be able to spend time in life. I mean, um, uh, the thing that I want people to understand about you though, too, is, um, you know, obviously a phenomenal businessman, a phenomenal hairdresser, an incredible, but even better human being. Um, you know, I pulled you aside at a, a large convention. I asked a question, uh, which I'm going to ask you now, um, to, to, to bring us home here. Um, but I asked you, a, I asked a question to a panel and, um, none one, no one on the panel answered. And afterwards you were willing to take the time when everyone was vying for your time and just have a conversation, like have a true conversation. And I remember you pulled your phone out and, uh, which is probably something you'll regret in the future is you gave me your phone number. Um, so (laughs) I loved it. But that question was, is, you know, we got, uh, you know, Van, the Van, the little uh, guy that didn't do well in school. We got uh, Van, the hairdresser. We got the guy who goes after it. Um, we've got Van now, the mogul that talks about 29 million, like it's $5, um, because he hangs out with people who do 70 million. Um, we have those things. What is the Star Wars? What's the galaxy far, far away for Van? Uh, what do you see for the future as you move forward? Well, I mean, really, I'm just, you know, I don't have, I don't have a desire to have a product line. Maybe one day I could have a school, but I, I'm back to the same thing, just trying to be the best that I am today. You know, and if I'm the best I am today and I'm taking care of people, then growth o- occurs organically. You know, and that's really where at. End of the day, I just want to remember, like, as a, good dad, a good son, and a good friend to all the people who've worked with me and that's helped me get to where I'm at. I mean, that's it. I don't have some big picture of conquering the world. You know, I just want to be the people that, the, I just want to know that people that's been involved in my life that I've been able to help them have a better life, you know, and that's really, I'm pretty content at night as long as I know I'm doing the right thing in my heart for people that I'm in contact with, I'm, I'm happy. Well, I want to thank you so much, Van. Again, thank you for your time. You are uh, you are incredible. You're such an inspiration and so impactful on so many people's lives. And I am just humbled to be able to spend time with you, man. Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, it's an honor. Love you and keep doing what you're doing. You're doing awesome. And uh, we will all get through this virus. Just, hey, listen to what they say. I'm in the mountains. I'm riding by myself. I'm paddling by myself. Because uh, we had leaders, we, we got to be here for our team, man. So I'm, let's just stay safe and we'll all get through this and uh, there will be a better day. 